standing, please, as Dan comes this morning to read our scripture for us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 3, 22 through 30. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin the message this morning by talking about a vaccine. Does that sound good? In the 830 service, you could hear a pin drop when I said that. You all weren't much better. No, it's not a vaccine of today, but I want to go back almost 70 years to 1955 when Jonas Salk led the efforts to give the polio vaccine to the entire world. I love this story that Jonas Salk was asked if he wanted to patent the vaccine so that he could protect its profitability for himself. And Jonas Salk responded, patent? There is no patent for something like this. Could you patent the sun and the light that it gives to the earth? No, indeed, you cannot patent something that belongs to the whole world. And I love that, that picture. Uh, in, in many ways for us today is very countercultural of someone who's willing to say, put my personal benefit and acclaim aside. What is best for everyone else? What is the bigger picture here, the bigger story that's going on that I'm a part of, that that is so much bigger than me and my own little world. That certainly is the common theme we see in the ministry and in the character of John the Baptist, the one who the Lord called to prepare the way for the Messiah. John, who continually through his public ministry remembered the calling that he had received from God that had actually come to his parents through the voice of angels John, it's not about you, but it's about the one who will come after you. And John gave constantly that that lifelong commitment to the calling he received. He had a deep awareness that he was part of something much bigger than himself and much bigger than his own little world. 
And John the Baptist, rather than seeing his ministry as competitive with that of Christ, instead continually took steps to fade to the background so that Christ would take center stage. Now you have to remember, by this point, we've been looking at John's life and ministry in Scripture for several weeks. John was something akin to a celebrity in the first century. He had huge crowds of people coming out to hear him preach. He had long lines of people waiting for he and his disciples to baptize them in the Jordan River. There were far more, many, far more people coming to John than were now going to the priests, or even at times going to the temple, certainly going to the synagogues to hear the best Jewish speakers of the day. So John had already experienced this on the other side. He was receiving the acclaim. People were going to him and in many ways leaving the religious establishment behind. Now the tables are turning and John's disciples begin to notice, wait a minute, the crowds that were following us, which used to go to the synagogues, are now following Jesus. What are we going to do? And what I want us to take away from this text today are two different ways that John models for us elevating Christ over self. Elevating Christ over self. And here's a first truth that I really think comes out of the first half of this text. That each of us, as we follow Christ closely, must come to a point that is the end of ourselves. If we are going to follow Christ closely, we will come to a point where we reach the end of ourselves and, and the only thing in front of us is, is that which points others to Jesus. Verse 22 begins with the words, after this, after what? Well, this is after Jesus' long conversation with Nicodemus. This was a, an occasion where some of the disciples overheard Jesus talking to this expert in religion, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, who, who saw something in Jesus that he couldn't explain using all of the words of his own education and all of his, his deep religious and biblical knowledge. The Lord was up to something in Jesus that Nicodemus couldn't explain, and he knew that it had to be related to the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to Nicodemus very clearly, if you truly want to see what's happening, if you truly want to see the kingdom of God, you, Nicodemus, yes, even you, have to be born again. You have to experience that full transformation of heart and life if you really want to see what God is doing now through the kingdom in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst, and to be a part of it, you have to be born again. It's after this that now this discussion happens with John and his disciples related to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus moves from the cover of night with Nicodemus, very much out into the public sphere, and he and his disciples are out baptizing people for others to see. But verse 23 says, even though Jesus was baptizing, John still was doing this as well. He and his disciples were still baptizing people at a place called Anon, at a place called the Springs. It makes sense. There was plenty of water there, and, and people were still coming to John to be baptized. And as John continued baptizing people for the repentance of their sins, John's disciples got into an argument with a certain Jew about the idea of ceremonial washing. So let's make sure we're all on the same page. So John and his disciples are still baptizing. 
Jesus and his disciples have now started baptizing. That's the separate issue that we're going to deal with in the second half of the text. But here at the beginning, as, as has probably been happening a lot as John is baptizing people, somebody from the Jewish establishment comes to his disciples and they want to get into yet another debate about John's baptism. So we talked about this ourselves a few weeks ago. We asked the question, why was John baptizing for repentance? What did that baptism look like? And in what ways might it have been different from the Jewish baptism that most people underwent? A few weeks ago, we talked about the mikvah. I won't recapture all of that for you, but the, the mikvah, the regular way that Jewish people in Judea would go be immersed as a ceremonial washing, a baptism, so to speak, before they went to the temple to worship so that they could make sure they'd gone through the purification rite. I imagine that John and his disciples often had to have these debates, these arguments about what right do you have to baptize people differently than what our priests are doing? I wonder what the content of this discussion might have been. Maybe they were arguing like we do sometimes today about methods. We get more concerned about the method than the meaning of the baptism, and so we split over methods as opposed to what we really believe. Maybe they were arguing with John about the way he was baptizing them. Or maybe it was about his qualifications. John, what right do you have? You're not a priest. You've not been endorsed by the Sanhedrin. Nobody's given you permission to do this. What qualifications do you have to baptize people for the repentance of sins and tell them that their sins are forgiven because you say so? Whether it was about methods, whether it was about qualifications, in any sense, I'm sure it was about authority. And I think we have to remember here that what John is doing is quite radical in that he's not doing it with the endorsement of the religious establishment. He is offering an alternative to those who would go through the mikvah before they would offer a sacrifice for sins. He's saying to them, no, something new is happening and be prepared because a new sacrifice is about to happen. And today, John would say, you could experience that baptism through 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 repentance of sins not because you're going through the right ritual but because of the condition of your heart and if you come to the lord with a heart saying god i, I do repent i do want to be right with you then hang out with me at the jordan river and me or my disciples will baptize you and god will bring forgiveness of your sins the jewish leadership had to be saying constantly how dare you offer forgiveness without connection to our hierarchical system that we have in place. The same thing that was true in the first century is true today. When you push back against the establishment, the establishment does not act kindly in response. If you push back against the religious establishment, if you push back against a political establishment or a political party or loyalty, if you push back against your tribe, if you push back against the empire itself, the establishment does not react kindly. And what we read in verse 24 is a foreshadowing of sorts. This was before John was put in prison. Yes, indeed, the establishment, the authorities are going to not react kindly to John. Eventually, he's going to be in prison, and eventually, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, he's going to lose his life because of this. But at this point... The argument develops between a certain Jew about ceremonial washing, John and his disciples. 
But then when his disciples come to him, they're not so concerned about what happened with this argument about baptism. But their concern is, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you've been testifying about, look, now he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Things are changing. We don't always like it when things change, do we? For John's disciples, that they've been living in good times. These have been good things they've been experiencing. And sometimes we also say things like, all good things must come to an end. John's disciples are not ready for their day in the sun to finish. They're not ready for the good things to come to an end. John clearly seems to be okay with it. But his disciples are still struggling. John, all, all the people who used to come to us, now they're going to that man that you've been telling us about. He's baptizing and everyone is going to him. As I was thinking about this part of the text, I was reminded of a, a funny story that a friend of mine shared online that, that just sort of makes me think about John's disciples and where they were. My friend talks about when he was attending a, a philosophy conference here in the States with a bunch of other graduate students. And the guest speaker was the renowned French philosopher Jacques Derrida, if you've ever heard of Derrida. This was before he passed away in 2004. And, and, and to have Derrida at your philosophy conference, this is a big deal. This is a major celebrity. And so all these grad students are clamoring to get the front rows. They want to be right beneath the feet of this great philosopher and teacher. And they want to be noticed. They want to take notes. They want him to see them. That they want to be as if they're, they're Derrida's own students and disciples. So Derrida was giving a two-part speech this day. And he began his speech talking about this, this deeper idea of philosophy and order as it can be seen through cows. And so the philosophy students are like, did he say cows? Okay. And they start taking notes. And Derrida's just going on and on about cows, cows, cows. And I could just picture these grad students like trying to act like they get it. You know, they're nodding their heads. They're taking, oh man, he's on fire today. This is, this is deep stuff. Cows, yes, I see. They take their intermission. They take intermission and break. They come back. Derrida steps up and he says, I'm afraid that my French accent has gotten in the way. I've been told it's pronounced chaos. Chaos was the word he was talking about. We say chaos. He says chaos. And for like 45 minutes, these grad students are, are aggressively taking their notes on cows. I just love this picture. I've been there too, right? John's disciples, they desperately want to impress their master teacher, their celebrity. They want to fight for him. This could still be our moment in the sun, John. But John knows that, as we've said, if it's truly about Jesus... And if we follow Christ closely, we must come to a point that is the end of ourselves, where we say it's no longer about us. And I believe that eventually we will all come to the end of ourselves. I believe that to be true. For most of us, it will actually happen in this life. We may come to the end of ourselves through suffering. Suffering has a way of, of, of emptying us in such a way that we would say, I, I have nothing left. We may come to the end of ourselves through sacrifice, where we, we feel led to give up many things. We may come to the end of ourselves through humiliation, where God says, you, 
you stand in a prideful place, but I'm going to bring you down a rung, and I'm going to lower you who are prideful. Humiliation happens to all of us. We may come to the end of ourselves through humbling ourselves, making that decision to humble ourselves. Or if somehow, some way, we don't come to the end of ourselves in this life, we will come to the end, at least of our physical selves, through death. At some point, we all come to the end of ourselves. But far better than all of those ways is to come to the end of ourselves in Christ. When we say it's because of Him that it's no longer about me. And that then we realize that coming to the end of ourselves in Christ, it actually involves all those other things. It doesn't require suffering. It does require sacrifice. Sometimes it does necessitate humiliation where God humbles us. Other times it is that we know God is telling us to humble ourselves. And coming to the end of ourselves in Christ always comes through death because we too are called to die to ourselves so that we may live in Christ who raises us from the dead. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ through his resurrection and we have died to ourselves. Each of us, as we follow Christ closely, must come to a point that is the end of ourselves. That's point one. But here's point two. And when we come to the end of ourselves, though this seems counterintuitive, it's a good thing. Because it means we are now poised to glorify Christ's name more than ever before. When we come to, to the end of ourselves, we are prepared we are poised, we are ready to glorify Christ's name more than ever before. So John is now going to respond to his disciples. That man you testified about, he's baptizing too, and everybody's going to him. Verse 27, John replies with a maxim of first century Judaism, a well-known phrase. He says, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. We might say it this way, Everything we have is a gift from God. And John, realizing, believing that, that everything he's received, everything he's experienced, including his public ministry, including his disciples who have gathered around, including the crowds who have been following him, all of it is a gift from heaven. And now it's a gift that John is going to give back. He says in verse 28, You yourselves can testify that I've been saying... I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. Think about the testimony that we've heard from John about Jesus so far. Prepare the way for the Lord, he said. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see the Lord's salvation. John also said, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, and it remained on him. I've been telling you all along, John says. This is my testimony. It was never about me. 
I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And if there's one thing that I've been trying to repeat over and over again that we would take away from John's example in his ministry is that in every moment that we have recorded in Scripture, John, through his ministry, pointed others to Jesus. That was his most important goal. In word and in deed, with all of his life, he pointed people to Jesus. Which makes me ask of myself and ask of you, what are the things in your life, words, actions, lifestyle, attitudes, that are pointing people to Jesus? And then we can ask that question the other way. What are the things in my life and your life that are not pointing people to Jesus, but instead they're really all about us? They're pointing people to, to self and to our own little kingdoms. Or you could ask it this way. What are the things in our lives that are turning people away from Jesus? We say we believe in him. People know that. We claim to be his followers, but those things that are actually pointing people away from Jesus instead of to Jesus. Just like John, we too are called to prepare the way with the good news of the gospel. And listen, we have no higher calling than to point people to Jesus. That's what it's all about. And John modeled that so well. When we, when we come to the end of ourselves, we are poised to glorify Christ's name more than we ever have before. But then I love what he says in verse 9. He gives an example that would be a very well-known example to his first century listeners. He says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And, and that friend who attends the groom is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. What John is talking about here is the, the ancient role of what we would call the best man. And the role of the, of the best man in the wedding, in the wedding feast in the first century, was much different than what we imagine the role of a best man to be today. So let's just, just think for fun about what, what typically an American best man would do in, in a typical traditional wedding. Normally, the best man really doesn't begin his job until the day before the wedding. Now, beforehand, he may have to buy or rent a tux or a suit unless... The groom is really, really generous, and he provides that for, for the best man. But other than that, his job really doesn't start until he shows up the day before the wedding ceremony. He usually plans and pulls off some sort of a bachelor party. And then during the ceremony, oftentimes the best man will hold one or both of the rings. And then finally at the reception, it's usually the best man who gives a somewhat inappropriate speech, right? Or sometimes a very inappropriate speech, depending on the wedding. And it, whether you've been to weddings, you've been in one, or you've watched a lot of American movies, we all can have a picture of the best man, both good and bad, what that role looks like in America. Back in the first century, especially among the Jews, the best man role, the one who was called the Shashman, it was a much more involved role, and that's what John is talking about here. The role of the best man, the best friend, the Shashman, it began months before the wedding feast and the wedding ceremony. It was the Shoshman's job to plan and orchestrate and organize everything related to the, to the wedding feast and to the ceremony. It was the Shoshman, the best man, who sent out the invitations. He's the one who contacted the family. He's the one who made sure the tables were set up perfectly and, and every guest had a seat. 
he had the really difficult job during the period of courtship of being the liaison between the bride and the groom so if the upcoming bride had a message she wanted to get to the groom the shoshman would deliver it and deliver it and and vice versa on the day of the ceremony all the preparations were in place he was the detail guy making sure everything was organized and then the most joyous part of his role was during the feast during the ceremony itself it was the shoshman who actually brought the bride and the groom together and joined their hands during the ceremony he would stand guard and, and protect his his friend the groom and then this is a really interesting role after the ceremony when the bride and groom would go to the bridal chamber to consummate the marriage the shoshman would stand outside and stand guard and make sure nobody disturbed them it's an intricate role and the way john describes it here is you know the joy that the shoshman experiences the moment when he gets to unite after all that work all that preparation all the details that he's focused on the moment that he gets to unite the bride and the groom together that's the moment where he's full of joy he hears the bridegroom's voice and he knows that that moment of union has come i love the way d.a carson says it the shoshman the best man found his greatest joy in watching the ceremony proceed without a problem and in knowing that the groom and his bride were being united with great rejoicing. And John says at the end there, verse 29, now that joy is mine. And that joy is complete because, and this is a deep truth here, because the moment of union between Christ and humanity has come. I've done my part. I've played my role. I've done the organizing, the preparing. I've done all of it. But now the joy is mine and is complete because Christ and humanity have come together and his public ministry has begun. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. John's the best man who attends the groom. Christ is the groom and we are the bride. We are his church. And our role as the church to prepare the way for the Lord is that we would make the groom's name known loudly and boldly and that we would proclaim the good news of what Christ has done for us as his bride, the church, now being sent out in the world to proclaim that his kingdom has indeed come in our midst. To join Christ in the work of advancing his kingdom which is far more important than advancing our own little kingdom. And finally, we come to verse 30, which for me in college became my life verse. If you ask me what's your favorite verse, I'll say John 3.30. And it's a verse that I will tell you at times I do better than at others in living it out. But I love John's concluding statement. I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one who's been sent ahead of the Messiah. He must become greater, and as he becomes greater, I must become less. Or as many of your translations will say, he must increase, and I must decrease. And as Christ is taking center stage, John is fading to the background. He accepts it willingly, graciously, and worshipfully, because he said this is this is how it was supposed to be all along. All good things must come to an end, but something really good is happening now. 
And I love the way this has been described. You've heard of the Great Commission. This is the Great Recessional. When John steps back so that Christ might take center stage with his public ministry, he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease, which, which happens naturally when we come to the end of ourselves and we're poised to do great things for Christ and his name and his glory. It just sort of naturally happens that as he increases, we decrease. But I also love the way Jesus described John later. In John chapter 5, he says, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John was a lantern. He was a beautiful light that gave light to the room in his time. But like all lamps, like all lanterns, if you don't keep relighting it, eventually the light will go out. John was like a lamp that burned in its season. But listen, Jesus is the light of the world. And that's the difference. It was time for John's light to fade and for the light of the world to shine. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the light of the world that still shines today and will never, ever, ever be snuffed out. That's what Jesus is saying. One ancient Christian, Ephraim the Syrian, said it this way. It was fitting that when the light of the sun appeared, you could read the word sun both ways, right? When the light of the sun appeared, the light of the lantern should fade away. Or we could even say it this way. John was the voice in the wilderness, but Jesus is the word. He is the word who became flesh. He's the one we worship. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we come to the end of ourselves, we are poised to glorify Christ's name more than ever before. Again, when, even though John and Jesus, their public ministry overlapped, when the time came for John to step back, he did not resist. But he remembered he had that deeper sense that what God was doing was much bigger than him and his kingdom. Rather than seeing Christ as his competitor, he embraced the change. And John became the last messenger of the Old Covenant. So this morning when we use that language of the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, John is the last messenger of the Old Covenant. Now the fulfillment of the Old Covenant is Jesus Christ. And this is deep. It's hard for us to understand. But I'm so thankful for the other John. So we keep juggling our Johns here. John the Baptist, we've talked about so much, but it's John the Apostle who wrote this gospel. And I want to close this morning with the words that he uses to close chapter 3. John 3.30 says, He must become greater, I must become less. But here's what John the Apostle says, starting in verse 31. This is why it's all about Jesus. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. But the one who comes from heaven is above all, and he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. But whoever has accepted his, it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. And listen to these words. For the Father loves the Son, and he has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The old covenant has been fulfilled. Something new is happening. And John says, The kingdom of God, which you must be born again to see, has been in your midst. The fullness of the kingdom has been right in front of you in Jesus Christ. And the Father has given to the Son everything. And through the Spirit, again, the Trinity working together, every word that proceeds from his mouth can be trusted. And for those who have seen Jesus Christ, who believe in his name, they have experienced life because it's only in Christ that that true, eternal life can be found. But whoever has seen the Son and rejects him, how can they possibly see life? How can wrath not remain on them because they have indeed rejected life itself? They've closed their hearts and their eyes to the light of the world. John was the voice in the wilderness. Jesus Christ is the Word. Do you know the Word? Having come to the end of yourself, and have you given your life completely to Christ so that he might increase even as you decrease? The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Would you pray with me? Lord, today we have so much to be thankful for. We have seen your love demonstrated to us in so many ways through our very breath, through the joy that we experience of being together here in worship, through the words that we've sang about you, through the spoken word, through the scripture we've read, and through the symbols of your sacrificial death, your body and your blood given for us we have seen you so clearly today lord may we not be those who turn away may we not be those who reject you and the work that you're doing in our life through your kingdom but lord today would you open our hearts to you and i pray specifically if there is anyone here who has never believed in the life that you are who's never believed in the word who does not know the light of the world that brings salvation that today you would awaken them and they would say, yes, Lord, here is my whole life, the end of myself, dying to myself, repenting of my sin and giving my whole heart and life that your name might increase even as mine decreases. Lord, today we have lift up, lifted up the name of Jesus. Would you do what you only can do and draw people to yourself in Jesus' name? Amen.